This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. You don't like the Drake. I hate the Drake. I love the Drake. How could you not like the Drake? Who's the Drake? Who's the Drake? The Drake is good. You like the Drake? I love the Drake. What about the Drake? Oh, screw the Drake. I love the Drake. This is Cam Bowen, voice of Tim Drake on Young Justice, and you're listening to Everyone Loves the Drake. Hi, this is James Tynan IV, and I love the Drake. This is George Perez at Cincinnati Comic Expo, and everybody likes the Drake, especially the cakes. Hi, this is Moff Wolfman, and everyone loves the Drake. Hi, this is Marcus Toe, artist for Red Robin. You've been listening to Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake podcast. Good for them. Love the Drake. Got to love the Drake. I'm impressed. What can I say? I'm irresistible. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Robin. Everyone loves a Drake comic podcast. I am your host, Rob Myers. Welcome to episode 119. The show is brought to you by the BatmanUniverse.net, your home for all things Batman and Robin, who, of course, is celebrating 80 years with a whole host of people celebrating 80 years this year. I feel like every week there's another 80th anniversary giant that's like, hey, we got the Joker. Hey, we got Green Lantern. So Hawkman should be right around the corner somewhere, I think. We're part of the Batman Universe Podcasting Network, and we're also associated with Batman on Films Podcast Network at BatmanPodcastNetwork.com. You can get a hold of us on all the social media outlets. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Everyone Loves a Drake. We're on Twitter at ELTD Podcast. We have an Instagram page, and you can email into the show at Robin ELTD Podcast. And I have recently started a blog spot page for the show that will be like an addendum to this as well. And you can find that at everyone loves the Drake.blogspot.com. So go check out that for more information for this show and the Young Justice show as well. Like I said, I'm Rob, and this is part of our 80th anniversary episode that we're alternating back and forth this year, celebrating all the various aspects of Robin, male, female, Damien, not Damien, Tim, whoever the Robin Robin is in any form of media that my guests choose to do so. So I'd like to welcome for the very first time on the show, somebody that I've been on the sides. I keep saying with some of the guests that I have on, I feel like I'm a a caller back into radio stations in the eighties where you say, hi, a long time listener, first time caller where I'm always like, I need to start writing emails into the shows I listen to making his first appearance on our show here. 
the host and co-host of some great shows. If you're not listening to, you need to go check them out. The host of Legion of Super Bloggers, First Strike Invasion podcast, Zero Hour Strikes, and Ciscoid's Blog of Geekery. Please give a warm welcome to the Drake House, Ciscoid. Thanks for having me. So uh, this has been fun to kind of reach out to other podcasters that... I don't always hear them talk about Robin, and when I hear them mention, like, oh, I think there might be a Robin connection somewhere, and it's just a chance to kind of cross-pollinate, if you will, you know, with other with other shows and uh, other people in this podcasting community that we're all a part of. It's just been it's been fun listening to your show, so I'm glad to have you here on this one to help celebrate 80 years of Robin. Like I like to do with all of my guests before we get into our featured topic is uh, who is your favorite Robin? And uh, maybe if there is a why there, (laughs) if there is a why. Yeah. Uh, Like, (laughs) yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, there's there are many, obviously. And my favorite is Tim Drake. I mean, he's the one that that is the only answer. Show over, folks. We'll see you next week. Right. I mean, (laughs) you know, I I know what show I'm on. Uh, But, you know, for me, I mean, Robin. Uh, as a kid, was on you know on the Batman sixty six show for me in French, which is it was also a phenomenon in French here, uh, and uh, you know I think I touched the Mago figure once. <laughs> like I have I have memories of the Mago Batman and Robin and like Spider Man uh, yeah. and the Batmobile, but they couldn't have been mine because I don't have them. So <laughs> so I don't I know have- how. I have some same memories. I remember being somewhere and just being in awe of like, oh my gosh, it's one of the Mego figures. You know, I don't, I couldn't tell you where I was at, but there was Captain America, Batman. I think there was a Robin, but I remember Superman like very yeah. vividly. Yeah, there was. I mean, and Spider Man had like red hands. Oh even, yeah, that's right. <laughs> even without the suit. Uh, and then it's like, okay, then like in this story, I'm a French Canadian kid, so I, you know, an Acadian, and we. I'm not watching uh, English language TV or reading English language comics. So, but I know who Robin is from a young age because it's just, you know, a, a pop culture icon. And then in my early, like almost preteens, I, then my English starts to get better. I start to watch TV. And of course, they're super friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in my teens, I would be shocked to hear Robin on the radio doing the top 40. Uh, because he was voiced Casey by Casey Kasem, Kasem yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's like my early, early uh, period with Robin. And then, of course, I know who he is, and I see him in comics here and there. Um, but I think I always liked Dick Grayson better as Nightwing. Uh, and I do like Damien, though I like him better with with Dick Grayson as, ba- yeah. as Batman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'll get into why, uh, you know, later on. But... Um, but Tim Drake is basically – I wasn't really a Batman reader, like pick up a Batman issue here, see Batman there. Uh, but I, at the time when I started reading American comics, which was the 80s, either Robin was off to the side, uh, had joined the Teen Titans, wasn't really with the Batman uh, comics. And Tim Drake just becomes – I know, I remember Jason Todd, but let's – you know, right. enough of that. <laughs> but <laughs> – but Tim Drake is the one that I saw, like, as soon as I saw him, I started reading Batman comics. And for the most part, it's because he was in it, I think. Uh, because for me, Batman's a bit of a cipher. And there are thousands of Batman stories. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't feel a need to collect Batman 
and it would break the bank probably. But Robin uh, was a character that I, that I immediately took to, uh, and that was Tim Drake. And I've read Tim Drake in the various iterations, including you know right up through his career as Red Robin. So uh, I feel like that's that's my Robin. I wanted to ask this. I didn't even think about it when I was sending you questions. Normally, I'm thinking I'm talking to, you know, we're all here in the U.S. and everything like that. And Mm. that this, you know, like you perfectly mentioned, the the phenomenon that, you know, kind of sweeps the globe. What was that like? Like, were you getting, this is maybe how naive I am, were you getting American comics and being like, oh, I've, I've got to try and learn to read American to be able to read these comics? Or were they getting printed? Because I've got a couple German issues of a lonely place of dying, and they're almost like treasury editions right. in size, maybe. But like, how how are comics presented for you? Do you get like the American and you know the French version of them? Well, I mean, Canada Canada gets just I mean, it's just you know a step away. So right, Canada right. gets all the American comics, uh, and as soon as I was reading uh, comics in their original English language, then that's what I was doing. Gotcha. Uh, but my you know our own culture. Uh, early on is to read those European, those big her- European hardbacks, you know, Tintin and Asterix. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. So that's our real culture. And that's what I started reading at, I don't know, three and a half, four, four, uh, four years old. I was reading those books. So I, I have, in a way, it gives you a, a, a wider span of comics or interests in the comic book mm-hmm. uh, medium than just superheroes, which was, was basically what American comics were marketed as when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Not to say there weren't any others, but you know, all you cared about was the, the superheroes there at right, the newsstand. Right. Um, so there were French translations of some of these comics, and I, and, and I did have some. They were uh, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, they would, um, they would trans... I mean, they would like empty out the bubbles, the, the speech bubbles. They would write in tiny, tiny script because French is, has more linking words. It's mm-hmm. longer to, to put a sentence in French. And, uh, the, the, I mean, just the grammar is more complicated. The syntax is more complicated. So it meant somebody, and not a very good letter, I must say, would <laughs> write in like all this scrunched up text that was meant to be equivalent to what the American, you know, whatever Spider-Man was saying. Right. So that was a problem. Uh, these comics were usually in black and white, so they did not recolor them. And I could get them. I, I barely bought any uh, that were like floppies because, um, I, I don't know, I, they just didn't fall into my hands. The, the company here, or in Quebec, I guess, was Heritage, was the name of it. Heritage. And um, they would often just collect two back-to-back issues in the, under the one cover, or they had these jumbo books, and that's what I really had. Jumbo books were okay. were like a collection of comics, very random. Uh, you had like the color cover inside; it was like a big trade paperback. And you'd had like you'd okay. have like the color cover, and then a black and white story, and then another color cover. But it's like th- this was it. This was like the, the normal composition. Here's a Thor story. Here's a Flash story. Huh. Here's a House of Mystery or some other crappy horror comic of the 70s. <laughs> here's a Tomb of Dracula. And it's like, there's no, oh, oh, here's a, the next Thor story, like deep in the book. 
So it was just a hodgepodge of every company. There were Charlton stuff in there for sure. There's like the yeah. uh, Charlton's Phantom had like strips in there. So it was just a, a random collection, a little bit like when you buy those bags with, uh, you know. That's what I was just yeah. thinking of. You get like five random comics in there. It says, read the next issue. And you're like th- thinking as a kid, oh, that's going to be in this bag. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and it never had Superman or Batman or like the name figures. So it's like, oh, this is how I got to know the Fantastic Four. This is how I got to know Thor, Captain America, mm. through those jumbo books, which I don't have anymore. I know I ripped them to shreds because I put the covers on my wall or something. <laughs> I was a child, but um, but I, I, I wish I still had them just to to see which books were actually in there when I talk about this. Uh, but that's basically the. The you know like my comic book DNA as a French Canadian person, uh, but then as soon as, as you can read English, and I started learning English from uh, Richie Rich and Archie and nice. that kind of stuff. I had an aunt who um, had a lot of used them as bathroom readers, I guess, and she would show up with these huge bundles of Harvey and Archie comics, and that's how I learned to to read English. Not speak it though, because uh, like the word though. <laughs> <laughs> Your language is written in all sorts of crazy ways. So that, that was the obstacle for for a kid, uh, you know, learning it as a second language. Yeah, it's, that's just one of those is the English language. It's like, ah, we're just going to throw a bunch of crap together. And that's just the way it is. <laughs> it's very fluid. I, I enjoy, I mean, I enjoy English in the way, I, I, you know, I have a... I have a degree in English lit. I, you know, I made choices that were. <laughs> yeah, there you I'm, go. I'm, a, I'm an Anglophile uh, in that way, but um, but at the same time, you know, it's like uh, I, I I know I've tutored people in English, and that's the pronunciations and the words that all look the same. Um, mm-hmm. That that is the the basically the obstacle for French speakers, anyway. Gotcha, gotcha. I thought I would throw that in there. Like, it didn't even dawn on me. Like, oh, I got a chance to ask some questions I don't don't normally get a chance to ask. One thing that I've been asking everybody, you know, now that we're in 2020, what whatever we think of this year so far, mm-hmm. is there still a need for, like, we're talking about the Mego figures. Like, you, like, if you had Batman, you had to have Robin. You know, the, the 66 TV series, I don't think doesn't work without having Batman and Robin, Burt Ward and Adam West in 2020 is, you know, the last time, actually the first time there was ever actually a Batman and Robin comic book, which blew my mind was in the new 52. And I kept going, well, surely there was a Batman and Robin comic. You know, Robin has always been there. Is, is there a need for a Batman and Robin anymore? Or have these two characters been split from each other that they can work independently of each other and, if they show up, great. If not, great. Mm. Well, I mean, there. Robin did share the byline on occasion. I think, like Detective Comics in yeah. the late '60s, did like Robin or Batgirl um, yep. backups. So there, there we would say Batman and Robin, Batman and Batgirl. But you know, it's not technically it wasn't the same. Um, and I guess he started as a point of view character, uh, sort of to say you, you can't if you can't be Batman because you wouldn't want to. I don't know. It, maybe yeah. people think people yeah. think they want to be Batman, but at the same time, do you really want that outlook on life? <laughs> right. I'd rather be the happy kid swinging, going, "Wee, this is fun." Yeah. You, know? <laughs> uh, you could at least be his best pal and hang out with him in lighter adventures, because you know Robin usually made it lighter. Usually, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so, and at the same time, he's. I mean, you talk about the TV series, him needing to be there. It's like Batman needs somebody to talk to. Like in the modern era of comics, we get a lot of caption boxes that are sort of like the inner monologue. And so Batman is speaking to you, 
or his psyche is speaking to you, or like yeah. the narrator through him. Uh, but um, on TV or in a cartoon, Batman needs to explain his deductive reasoning to someone. Yeah. Uh, so he's uh, he's the companion to Doctor Who. He's you know he's, there, there needs to be someone there to speak yeah. to. Yeah, Holmes needs his Watson to go. Ha! But if you looked, right, Clay, you know, such elementary, such. right? Uh, but <laughs> perfect. Yeah, but what I think what makes a good long-lived character, and here I'm talking about Batman, uh, is what I call a central paradox. Like solo Batman's central paradox is that he's a dark Avenger of the night, but he refuses to kill. So mm-hmm. you can see where I think some interpretations are not so good. Um, <laughs> but with Robin, his central paradox is that, um, I mean, with Robin, he, his central paradox becomes that he's a dark loner, but he fights crime with a brightly dressed, sparkly young spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, this is why I like Dick Batman and Dark Damien better than Bruce and Damien together. You know, yeah. it's like there, there needs to be that contrast, I think. Yeah, and Br- Bruce and Damien are, are too far, like... Damien and Dick are from the same piece of cloth, but completely different ends of the cloth, where Bruce and Damien, you go, if one just pushes the other in the right direction, they're not going to have that morality head speak up and go, do you really think we should be punching these guys in the fist? Like, Damien's going to draw a sword and go, yeah, that's right, Dad, let's go, you know? Yeah, and some versions of Batman would go all in with the Damien <laughs> attitude, your practices. Right. Uh, but if if we're thinking like I like th- thinking about how, why he might do that, why would Batman hang out with this bright, you know, brightly colored little kid? Uh, and thinking about that ma- just makes Batman deeper. Like the original Robin uh, was also a child of tragedy, so he's guiding him out of the darkness that overwhelmed him, using mm-hmm. what he knows, which is. Real discipline and applied ethics. Uh, that's what I'm going to call it. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think that was a success. If you look at Dick's journey, right? Like Dick learned something from Batman. And I think other Robins are the same. Other Robins have different backstories and different outcomes to their lives, but it's always about guiding a youth in the right direction. And that yeah. direction is hopefully not as dark as his own. So solo Robin stories then become about showing how those lessons have uh, impacted the character's life and methods? Do they embrace Batman's lesson? Uh, do they reject it, adapt it, uh, improve upon it, mm-hmm. uh, fail to understand it? So the reason for having multiple Robins then becomes that, becomes that becomes the what is the possible impact of hanging out with Batman? <laughs> uh, and there, there are many possibilities, not just the one. So each of these Robins have gone their own way and they've also used the other Robins as... As inspiration, like I mean, obviously not Dick, but the each successive Robin is kind of looking to the other Robins and saying, yeah. and saying yes or saying no. Uh, so I mean, it's like I don't get to talk about Robin much on my shows because they're just not the topic. Right. Uh, but the one time I I know I did was on the zero uh, zero hour strikes because there was a Robin issue uh, in zero hour. And uh, my co-host and I talked about Robins in that context, and it is a story about Robin, uh, Tim, Tim Drake, meeting a young Dick Grayson because of the time anomalies and how... I love that issue. It, it's one of the best, if not the best, crossover tie-in issue of the Zero Hour event. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and thus the best issue of the entire event because Zero Hour, the miniseries itself, kind of sucks. 
And I say this as someone who's indexing it for a podcast. Right. Yeah, but but it is about their. I mean, about Tim looking at the young, his young, a younger mentor, a mentor when he was younger, uh, and you see in that issue just how what he took from Dick, what he aspires to be, uh, and Dick isn't even. You know, so he's like twelve years old in the story, uh, mm-hmm. and he's he's already on top of it. He's already. He's already Nightwing in a way, you know. Right. So uh, I, I really like the contrasting those two figures and learning just how they, you know, one impacted the other, basically. And one of my favorite scenes from that, if I'm remembering it correctly, it's been a while since we covered it, was they are sitting in the Redbird, and Dick makes mention of "Were were you Robin after me?" And Tim has that inner monologue of you know, like, or what happened to what happened to the person after me, or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And Tim has that inner monologue of like, "Now is not the time to to say like one of us ha- has gone on." And I always like that as a character building block for Tim that. Dick didn't start coming around towards little after nightfall. So Tim was in the cave all the time where he's like, hey, I want to come out. And Bruce is like, no, and constantly staring at the Robin costume, knowing the weight that the journey he's going on. And this costume is staring at him saying, you know, basically one false move and you're going to be standing right next to me. So I always liked that, that he had the respect for Dick Grayson, but could see where taking the wrong step could lead him down Jason Todd's path. Right, and we—that's what's interesting about Tim—is that he knows the history, and there is more than one example to follow or not follow. You know, mm-hmm. so um, uh, and I mean, and Damien's in there. You know, eventually becomes that that person as well. Who, but I don't think he's so hung up on the tradition. <laughs> right. Well, one of the last questions before we get into our uh, feature topic here, like I had told you before, like this question is probably going into your first. What, like, what does Robin mean to you, not only personally, but just globally, if you will, like the idea of Robin? When somebody says Batman, you know, the word association game, people will say Robin. What do you, what do you think that means to you and, you know, maybe others? Well, I think, I mean, th- this is a prototypical sidekick. Uh, and I know that's an old-fashioned idea, but at the same time, it is a classic superhero trope, and I do like those tropes. I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of Golden Age comics. We'll see in, in the, the choice <laughs> I made. Uh, I, I love Golden Age comics. I love comic book history, uh, and I like when writers use the whole of it. I like whether it is as a sort of a throwback tribute um, or in a crazy way, like maybe a Grant Morrison would do. Continuity, comic book history, the tropes, the the myth that is kind of collectively created from superhero comics is interesting. Uh, and um, I, I don't like it so much when they reject that. <laughs> I like it when they <laughs> embrace that. So sidekicks are, of course, a part of that. And I don't like comics that are cynical. So I don't like the comics that would say, no, a sidekick, well, a sidekick would get himself killed within, you know, five minutes. Right. Um, or uh, there must be something untoward or toxic <laughs> uh, or abusive in the relationship. Look, it's comic books, people. 
Right. <laughs> you know, it doesn't right. have to be. You know, just if you're accepting that people have capes and people are flying around and have superpowers and whatnot. Right. If you're accepting that Gotham City is essentially a grouping of disused factories with no real people living in it, then you can accept the teenage sidekick. You know. Right. I I always like those arguments. Like that's just wrong for Batman to be endangering a child. Yet mm-hmm. Superman just flew in the other panel, lifted Wayne Manor from the rubbles of No Man's Land and placed it back. I got something Dixon said he wanted to do. Like, hey, we're, it's built in a second. Like, you're okay with that, but he shouldn't be toting around Dick Grayson at 12 years old. I'm like, come, come on. We've, we've got Hal Jordan finding a ring from an alien and uh, can fly and, and build constructs, and that's okay, but... We're going to go with child endangerment here. I, I think I think we can let this go. You know, there's a suspension of disbelief for a purpose. You know, there there's a wall here. We're not we're not trying to break that fourth wall. And the closer you bring things to a reality, like our own world, the more these things are going to look suspect. You know, yeah. that's why they're more suspect in movies. Or, but at the same time, it's like it's like nobody needs to write seduction of the innocent today because people are doing the work themselves by. By being unable to suspend disbelief, you right. know? so uh, yeah, of course. If this were to happen today, it would be worrisome. But yeah. you know, it's a fantasy, so uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm I'm fine with it. There are plenty of teen heroes that don't have an adult mentor. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's even worse, isn't it? Right. Yeah. There, there's no one guiding them. They're up to their own devices and whatever they see or think or feel or whoever they hang around with that's it's probably going to be peers of their own age so you get those angst heroes teens or whatever for with no moral no moral guiding like hey we we shouldn't do that we shouldn't do this Uh, moral and and technical because technical yeah i think you know i think heroes normally are written to to be uh, to be good people, but at the, if you're unprepared, then you know it's like everybody in the Legion of Superheroes started out as a teenager. They should all be dead by page five. The Teen Titans <laughs> dead. You yeah. know, <laughs> right? X Men dead. They're all dead because they don't get they don't have proper training. I say that I know the X Men had like you know Professor X or whatever. Right. So there, so there are people training them, but then you've got you know, and, and it is part of the thrill, if you will, of something like Power Pack to see. You know, school age, elementary school age children having superpowers and being, you know, out of their depth and all of that. Uh, but uh, you know, it's like, but they need they need some guidance in the real in a real world setting. So um, I think Batman shepherding someone who, who, you know, in the original story had a similar origin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also an orphan, also a child of crime of you know of a, a, a dreadful crime was committed and they lost their parents will they take that dark path and it will is that dark path going to be uh blacker darker even than batman's and i think you know jason todd certainly went in that direction so he's there to make sure there isn't another batman yeah so so i i like that 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 idea that he doesn't he wants to prevent another him from happening because he is incredibly self-aware, uh, but incapable of stopping his, you know, his, uh, his crusade. But at the same time, you know, if, if some, you know, that's the way he coped. So he's also helping someone cope in a similar way, but, yeah. but then not have to do, make all his mistakes, I guess. 
have you? I take it you've probably watched the, and uh, maybe not the uh, Young Justice cartoon series. Sure. So I can't remember if it was season. I think it was season one. Uh, kind of blurring together where they're getting ready to introduct new members into the Justice League, and uh, Bruce brings up like there's a, an image of Dick Grayson, Robin, and uh, you, Diana has that line about you know you want him to uh, be into uh, the Justice League so he can turn out to be exactly like you. He says, no, I want him to be a part of this. I brought him into this world so he doesn't become like me. And I kind of like put a little hush into the rest of the Justice League. But I always liked that, that he saw exactly what you were saying earlier. He saw the path that he knows where he's clearly going. The world already has one dark Batman. We need something different we need something brighter and you know that's you know metaphor and with his costume and everything but i i always liked that in that young justice episode where he has to tell wonder woman i'm doing this so he doesn't become like me i always thought that was a a neat little piece that isn't always quite said sometimes in comics yeah and it may have you know influenced what i said today i i haven't seen that episode in years but uh you know evidently it, it molded, helped me mold my opinion here. Yeah, there we go. Well, I think this is a good time. We're going to take a quick promo break. And when we're back on the other side, we're going to talk about the book we have for today and the reasons why this book is here today. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Siskoid's blog of geekery is... Doctor Who, Babylon 5, Animation, Comics, Toys, Star Trek, Cats, Crypto, Role-Playing Games, Battle Shovel, X-Files, Music, Podcasts, Board Games, Jack Kirby, Alien, Movie, Kung Fu, Dinosaur, and so much more. Siskoid's Blog of Geekery, 10 years of content, more than 7,500 posts, still going strong at siskoid.blogspot.com. Welcome to the world of tomorrow! The Legion of Superheroes through the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the Baxter series, five years later, the reboot, the three-boot, the retro-boot, the animated series. We have banded together as the Legion of Super Bloggers to cover it all. Seek us out at legionofsuperbloggers.blogspot.com. always have to say it that way haven't you ever heard of a little thing called showmanship the time is out of joint the time is out of joint the time is out of joint the year is 1994 or 1944 or maybe 2994 time is under threat and history is falling apart who will survive this crisis and how will history be changed for those that do Zero Hour Strikes takes you back to that DC Comics crossover and covers the entire story, issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in, as the DC Universe goes down to zero. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes, Zero Hour Strikes, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Legion. All right, now we're back for our celebratory episode for the 80th anniversary of Robin. And like I said at the top of the show, I've asked all of my guests to pick out 
anything that they would like to talk about. It could be an animated film. We could do a commentary track, a, a comic, a novel, anything they liked. The only prerequisite, it had to have some Robin in it. It didn't matter which Robin it was. And I know Terrence and Ryan are like, oh my gosh, we're going to be talking about Damian Wayne one of these times. So I'm kind of hoping somebody picks Damian <laughs> somewhere down the line. So, Siskoid, what did you pick today and why? Uh, well, I wish you'd told me about your Damien problem. I could have, <laughs> I certainly could have done something about that. Yeah, I would have uh, made sure Terrence and Ryan would have been here for this one. <laughs> but I'm kind of, I'm the kind of person uh, who will try to guide you to to more obscure stuff. And That's- that you did, sir, because I I thought for a brief moment I've got this, and. I was certain that I had the book that this came from. I've picked it up many times, the reprint of it, the Robin Archives Volume 2, and I sadly do not. So I was really disappointed and very happy when you uh, sent me uh, some uh, digital scans of this issue. But anyway, I'm I'm cutting you off. So what would you pick? Uh, Well, it is a Robin story from Star Spangled Comics, um, number 97 in this case, cover dated October 1949. Uh, the story is going to be called The Man Who Stole Time. Uh, but the reason why I picked this, uh, and you're right, the, these strips are reprinted in the Robin archives. Well, fan wisdom would have it that, you know, the, the first Robin to have his own series was Tim Drake. Mm-hmm. That's technically true. But I tend to think that if you were the headliner in a Golden Age anthology book, yeah. then that should count for yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. Action Comics is a Superman book, even though. You know, I used to also star, I don't know, Zatara, Vigilante, you know, they were, <laughs> right. uh, Congo Bill. Um, and Detective Comics is Batman, is a Batman book, even though it first featured Slam Bradley and the Crimson mm-hmm. Avenger. So, uh, same thing with Dick Grayson, who was once the lead feature in Star Spangled Comics from number 65 to number 130, which is, after that it turned into a Weird Western or whatever it was. Right, so, right. Star Spangled Western. Um, or Star Spangled War Stories, one of those. Anyway, that's roughly from 1947 to 1952, holding the cover spot until issue 95, after which Tomahawk took it away from him. <laughs> Times were changing. That's uh, and he'd taken over from the Newsboy Legion. So it was already kind of a youth-oriented uh, book. Uh, granted, a few of these stories were actually Batman and Robin, stories, uh, but for the most part, they, they were solo adventures, with Batman sometimes showing up at the beginning and the end, but not always. Some, you know, it was the 40s and 50s, some were high-concept tales, like Robin Crusoe uh, on a <laughs> desert island, or Robin going back to, in time to the Old West, but most were these little mysteries with Robin as a boy detective. He never, uh, he, I think he even spawned uh, his own recurring villain, the clock. <laughs> yeah, a crook, I, a, you know, obsessed with time, and I guess a precursor to the Clock King and Calendar yeah. Man in a way. Yeah, yeah. And he fought Robin four times, uh, and and he never fought anyone else. So this is Robin's arch enemy, uh, and we'll actually be looking at his fourth and final story today. Uh, so the series, uh, all the stories were signed Bob Kane. No big surprise, obviously. Shocker. He didn't do. He didn't do a damn thing with him. But uh, the art was mostly handled by Wynne Mortimer and Jim Mooney, as in this issue. And as far as I can tell, no writer has ever been, has ever been confirmed. No, I, I was wondering if I wasn't doing my homework right. And I'm like, surely I can find the writer. And I just kept going down the rabbit hole no. of, of the same information. I was like, 
Well, Bob Kane's name appears on it. Maybe he wrote it. Then I was like, okay, Rob, it's, no. it's just Bob Kane. It's Bob Kane's <laughs> stamp that is on there. So then I thought, well, did they mean Jim uh, Mooney did the uh, writing as well? So yeah, I don't think an artist has been named. Uh, Apparently, Bill Finger is a likely suspect. That's from my kind research. of what I was wondering, wondering there to myself. Yeah, it's his style. It's certainly his style of story, uh, and um, and he did a lot of the ghost writing for Bob Kane. Of course. Mm-hmm. So it looks like it was him, but I'd be surprised if Bob Kane wasn't writing Batman, but was writing the Robin strips. That would be very, very surprising. <laughs> yeah, same here. Yeah. So that's my choice was basically I wanted to do a story from, from Star Spangled because I didn't think anyone would think of it. No. Uh, and uh, that's one thing. The second, it is a late golden age, I guess, you know, 40s, 50s. Mm-hmm. But a late golden age story, which... I think is is worthy of attention, and I kind of like that style. And it featured the clock. And I was looking through it, it's like, oh, well, you know, maybe we at least should do like one of those little mysteries. It is kind of a mystery. Mm-hmm. It is Robin in sort of the Batman, uh, doing the Batman thing. He's got his own villain, but he's got his, you know, his own attitude. And I, I thought it was kind of clever. I mean, it was a, like a fun story. Of all the stories that I've read there, this is a good example. And Batman doesn't show up. So it is a real solo Robin story. Yeah, and I don't think there's any reference to Batman from Gordon at any point, uh, flipping through this really quick, of him, like, oh, Batman's not... Like, one of the tropes would be, like, oh, Batman's out of town, Commissioner, it's just me. You don't get any of that. Like, Gordon calls in Robin, and we're off to the the races. If it is uh, Gordon, I I guess it is, yeah. That's his... That that's his look. He's um, he's in the Batcave, isn't he? At one point, yeah, towards the, the, the latter half of the book. Yeah, so that's it. That's pretty much it. Otherwise, he's using his own bag of tricks. He's using he, and everybody's like, "Yay, Robin! Hey, look, it's Robin!" <laughs> it's, it, nobody's asking questions about. It's almost as if we can imagine a reality where in Gotham, Batman and Robin work together, but Batman is out at night and Robin is out during the day. You know, yeah. sort of things. And people tend to know Robin better and and are used to seeing him at public events and doing things, whereas Batman, you know, is working in the back alleys somewhere. But Robin would be the the sort of glamour, you know, celebrity hero. Yeah, he would be doing the ribbon-cutting ceremony at the Piggly Wiggly down the street <laughs> during the day or whatever right. the little... Uh, hardware shop is and getting his cheek pinched by uh the cute little <laughs> shop owner or whatever yeah oh, of course in this era batman did that stuff too and yeah, people yeah. were receiving medals all the time and it was a very weird comic book trope of that era like in the batman and superman books or it's like every every two weeks these heroes get medals and they show up at dedication ceremonies mm-hmm. and it's like <laughs> when do you have time to fight crime i do like the cover here for uh, issue uh, a 97 here and uh, the like Robin only appears on the cover at the very very top of the cover the upper left hand corner and mm-hmm. um, I'm assuming that the there are other stories in this book as you know uh, I was only seeing just the uh, um, right there is Tomahawk is uh, is in there yeah. Manhunter um, you've got your your Captain Compass so another big deal detective uh, are, are the main stories, and then the rest of it is uh, you might get you know like a, 
a comedy strip or something. But uh, it's like fewer stories than there were in the deep golden age, like in the 40s. Right. But uh, those are the other headliners. Those are the four main stories. All right, and now the synopsis and information for Star Spangled Comics, issue 97. Now, this is quite an older book here, so the information is a little lacking, even on Mike's Amazing World, but that is where I'm pulling the information from. And we'll hear more about that in our conversation with Siskoid right after the synopsis. But the information that Mike's Amazing World has on this reads as follows. The comic title is Star Spangled Comics. This is issue 97. The publisher is National Comics, of course, also known as DC. And actually, the address at the time was 480 Linkston Avenue, New York, New York. So there you go. If you want to write in to an address that is no longer of use for DC Comics, or should I say, Nationals. Cover date is 1949. The approximate sale date is August 5th, 1949. This was a monthly comic, and the cover price was a huge whopping 10 cents. And it was probably a huge whopping 10 cents back in, you know, 1949, 1950. The page count is 48 and the editor is Jack Schiff. The title is The Man Who Stole Time and the page count for this story that we're talking about since it features Robin is 12 pages. This is Earth 2, Robin. The artist is Jim Mooney, and that is it for creator credits on this. Now, Siskoid and I will talk about that in the issue itself of who potentially wrote this story and some other information that we have here. This has been reprinted a few times and a couple other tidbits here and there. Uh, reprinted in Robin Archives Volume 2 hardcover that was produced in 2010. I do not have this, and after reading this story, spoilers, I say it in the episode itself that this is something I want to track down. I've always liked getting some older Robin stories. I have some of the showcase issues and I thought, oh, this one might be in there. It is not in the Robin showcase issue, unfortunately. So Siskoid was nice enough to send me some screenshots that he had of the pages of this. So I didn't have a physical copy to read, but I'm going to rectify that. The feature characters in this was Robin. He last appeared in World's Finest Comics issue 42. His next appearance would be in Batman 55. Supporting characters Commissioner Gordon last appeared in Detective Comics 150. His next appearance will also be like Robin's in Batman 55. And for the villains would be the clock as the main villain in the story. His last appearance was in Star Spangled Comics 97 and has no further appearances. So he only had two, like two or three, I think. There's some other characters, an eccentric billionaire, his butler, no further appearances, and members of the Robin fan club. No other appearances. And there's some other several escaped convicts that really have no names and no further appearances. So now for the synopsis of The Man Who Stole Time. Star Spangled Comics, issue 97. In the Batcave, a clock can be seen, but this is no ordinary clock, my friend. This clock tells time, but what time is it? This clock has no face, no numbers, just a blank face that tells time. What can this clock do other than keep no time? It can do one thing. It took an entire day from Robin, the boy wonder. Let's back up a few days and see how we lost time. In the prison laundry room, the clock is enraged that he has to do time, all because he was captured by Robin, the boy wonder. He was sentenced to do ten years in prison for his crimes. No cell will hold the clock. Time cannot be stopped for anyone, especially the clock. The clock begins to tamper with the pressure valves in the laundry room 
with the right pressure and the right amount of time, boom, the whole laundry system explodes, causing a giant hole for the clock and his men to escape through. Now it is time to get back. Time. The next morning, on the face of one of the largest clocks in Gotham City, a sign on it reads, Robin, for every second, minute, hour, day, week, month, and year, I spent doing time. I will steal back my time, beginning with a second. The clock. Sometime later, alerted police bring news to the anxious boy wonder. Robin is told of the message on the clock tower, and Robin begins to investigate. The police chief, I want to call him O'Hara, it's not. We're still a couple decades away from that. But a police officer walks in and tells Robin that a patrol car spotted the clock sneaking into the baseball stadium. Commissioner Gordon says trying to hide among 60,000 fans. The commissioner says they'll send officers down and he will be trapped in the stadium. At the baseball stadium, the clock dressed in the attire of the baseball team the clock rides a steamroller out onto the baseball field. Seconds later, Robin, the boy wonder, hears the uproar from the fans and enters the field. The clock begins to drive on the baseball field, interrupting the game and driving all over the diamond, and stops at second base and takes it and puts it into his vehicle. Holy cow, he's stealing second base. I understand now. He's stealing a second, Robin exclaims. And then the clock begins to throw baseballs at the boy wonder. Robin grabs a bat, of course, why wouldn't he, and begins to hit the balls that the clock is throwing at the boy wonder. Robin is so good at hitting all the balls that some of the spectators even say that he's better than some of the players. While Robin is busy swinging for the fences, the clock hops back on the steamroller and drives right out of the stadium. When Robin catches up with the clock, the clock is nowhere to be found. Unbeknownst to Robin, that the clock has hidden inside of the wheel of the steamroller. Robin wonders what the purpose of this was with him just stealing second base. What Robin doesn't know is that while all this was going on, the clock's men are robbing the cashier. The next day, Robin is back at Gotham Police Department with Commissioner Gordon holding a note. The note reads, Dear Robin, be careful. I intend to steal a minute next. Enclosed, find the second base sack. You can rest your weary head on it. Ha ha ha, the clock. Elsewhere at the home of Titus Gaudry, eccentric billionaire, he is fired yet another one of his cooks for not being able to properly cook a three-minute egg exactly. A man shows up at the mansion, a familiar-looking man perhaps. Psst, it's the clock in case you don't know. He says he heard that you needed a cook. My specialty is eggs, especially three-minute eggs. Later that day, the clock is carrying a tray to the man's bedroom, serving him the three-minute eggs. The gentleman exclaims, I've never met a man who cooks eggs so well. Mr. Gowdy cracks the delicate shell of the egg, but instead of releasing egg fluid, it's gas. Sleeping gas, to be exact. You'll sleep now, giving me time to open your wall safe. The last cook is unaware his three-minute glass didn't work because I put a two-minute one in its place. I stole a minute to get this job. The job he's speaking of is that the clock actually wanted his wife's gay 90s doll with the hourglass figure that is cut with real gems. Back at police headquarters, there's a ransom note for the doll. Robin says he's holding the doll for $10 million in ransom. The note also says that he wants Robin to leave the money atop of the sundial in the deserted Elks estate at exactly noon tomorrow. Gordon says this must be a trap and insists that he does not go alone. Robin states, no, this might scare him off and this might be the only chance to get him. He has to comply with this and he might be able to pick up where the clock's hideout is. 
The next day, Robin is at the sundial. The bills that are marked in invisible ink, but the clock won't know this. Time is almost up. It's almost noon. What happens now? The next moment, the floor tilts, and too late for Robin for him to realize this important fact. The dial was rigged so that the shadow would fall and break the electronic cell contact and releases the trap door. Now Robin is in his own subterranean prison. Then an all-too-familiar voice rings out from inside of the wall. I stole a second, a minute, an hour, and now I will steal a day. Suddenly, gas. Above, it's a hissing sound. The clock's voice begins to speak instantaneously. Listen, Robin, you're quite a boy, but now imagine what you'll be like when you're grown up. Imagine being six foot, four in height. And that's what happens. Well... In Robin's dream, that is. Robin dreams he is six foot four and is able to do anything. Robin the man wonder. He's able to take all kinds of crooks. He is a true powerhouse. But sadly, this is all just a dream. He is still trapped inside of his prison. Robin sees a clock on the wall. But this is no ordinary clock. There's no face, just hands that go around. No numbers, no seconds, nothing to indicate what time it is. No orientation on the clock to even know what noon would be. Just the tick, tick, tick. The ticking is almost maddening. Robin wonders how long has it been. He'll smash the clock. No, he's got to control himself and wait it out. He needs to stick it out. And then what seems like an eternity... The trap door opens up. It's sunlight. He can get out of here. Once outside, Robin looks at the face of the sundial that he was once fooled by. It's a 12 o'clock shadow again, just like the one that opened the door. That means a whole day has passed. The clock has taken a whole day from his life. Robin heads back to the police headquarters and gets more disheartening news. Commissioner Gordon says that while Robin was asleep, he stole an entire week. There was a viable painting from the National Art Week Museum. Gordon also says that now he's boasting he's going to steal a whole entire month. Robin stops in by the Robin fan club to get a little bit more perspective and maybe to help work on some of the clues from the clock. Robin tells the Robin fan club that the clock thinks that he has beaten him because he's only a kid. He says he wants to prove to the clock that kids can do what men can do. One of the club members disguised as one of the shoeshine boys readies to Robin, telling him that the clock and his two men are entering the Puzzle of the Month club. Moments later, Robin arrives at the Puzzle of the Month Club. The clock is shocked by Robin being there in the first place. While escaping in his car, the clock hits the side of a fire hydrant. Robin begins to inspect the fire hydrant and sees red flecks of paint. Robin says the color of car was green, so this paint came from his license plate. Hmm, that's an odd color for license plates. The state plates in Gotham are orange and black, so this car must be from out of state. Later in the Batcave, Robin looks at various plates from all over the United States. With the spectrometer analysis of the red flecks of paint, Robin begins to check the different colors of red that are on a few of the license plates. Robin soon puts out an APB calling all cars to be on the lookout for Clock King riding a green sedan with Indiana license plates. Meanwhile, at a factory that has been closed for the night, the clock is about to do his big steal. He is going to steal a year. What this factory is is a printing plant for calendars for the upcoming year for 1950. The clock is going to steal plates that are going to be printing the new 1950s calendars. At that moment, Robin the Boy Wonder enters. He has finally tracked down the clock. Desperately, the time theme climbs one of the huge calendars that's being erected in the middle of town display. This is a large calendar. It's probably 10 stories. He begins to climb up the bottom half of the calendar. 20, 13, 
seven up to the number one into the month of February. There's a large diorama at the top of the calendar featuring a giant axe. The clock knocks down the cherry tree along with the axe, narrowly missing Robin's head. Forced to retreat, the clock jumps backwards into January and slides down one of the slopes that is depicting a snow scene. Robin, doing some quick thinking, hops on top of the makeshift sled and slides down on top of the clock, knocking him out of the display, but not falling completely to the ground, his pants are caught on the number one on the 1st of January. Robin says, caught on the first day of the new year. Happy New Year, clock, since you'll be spending the new year in jail. The End. Batman and Robin means tops in detective thrills also team up in world's finest and detective comics. Well, let's just talk about uh, this and right off the, the top, I, I always like the, uh, this era of the Robin logo that's on the, the top of the page, Robin, the boy wonder that uh, behind it is that forties, fifties Batman logo. So mm. that was always cool to see some of Golden Age books where you'd have a Robin backup and you would have uh, this logo. And if I'm remembering correctly, this logo was used uh, off and on into the early part of the 60s uh, as well until the mid-60s, early 70s, they would give Robin a little bit different logo where you would get, I'm even thinking more of the 80s, where you'd get his head with his cape whirling around the side and you'd have the Robin um, probably thinking oh, yeah. more of my superpowers logo. But I, I always dug... Uh, this logo. It's, um, I had a, a sticker as a kid of this Robin logo. Rob, Robin was really easy to to like like this character, and my mom was kind of leading me down this road of Robin. She found it very cool sometimes to buy something that said Robin, knowing that I liked Batman, and would scratch off the I-N or cover the I-N up so whatever it was would say Batman <laughs> and, and Rob. So uh, that <laughs> mom... Uh, Got my obsession with Robin <laughs> right away. I love the opening shot of this where it says, The Man Who Stole Time. And as I was reading this, I was the first clock uh, story I've read. And I was like, oh, they mean clock king, right? And, you know, doing a little bit more uh, reading and research on it. I was like, oh, wow, this is, you know, like you said, this is Robin's villain. And to know in this issue, like you said, this is his fourth and final appearance in it. But Robin trapped in the large hourglass, which is also funny, you know, that clock is in there as well. And, you know, you can assume that the top is off of the hourglass, but he's stomping down the uh, the sand on top of Robin, which this almost feels like this is the cover of the Robin issue as well. And I was really kind of hoping that this like oh this is a uh late 40s you know batman robin story he's gonna be trapped in this clock so i was kind of sad that he's not <laughs> in the hourglass but we get something i think maybe a little bit better towards the the end of the book but what did you think about the uh this opening shot yeah the splash page is really cool because it is metaphorical so the idea is that this man, the clock, will be stealing time from Robin. Um, you'll get to it in the synopsis. But he wants to steal time from Robin because Robin stole time from him. Because this isn't their first – it's going to be a revenge story. You know, This isn't their first entanglement. And uh, last time they fought, of course, or maybe the last, last three times they fought, the clock wound up in prison. He lost actual time. So – 
that matters to him and it fits his madness or you know his particular quirk. So in this, yeah, he's in a giant. You, it's a golden age story. A Golden Age Batman Robin story, you need giant props. So <laughs> here it is, giant, the giant hourglass. And he's real, you know, he's kicking the sand so as to make it flow faster. Right, right. Uh, and that's the whole idea. And, and that's going to bury, uh, in this image, it buries Robin. And that's exactly what he's going to try to do. You know, this is a metaphor for what he's going to try to do in the story itself. So, yeah, I like it a lot. There's something that I've always liked about this era of Batman and Robin, and I would always attribute it to, you know, you, we don't have the sophisticated, or they didn't have the sophisticated art styles, and maybe I'm uh, talking off color, off term there, but in, in a Jim Lee or a Jason Fabok or, you know, whoever the hit, the hit new artist is, where the capes don't actually always set off the shoulders and drape down. But I always like that look where the cape looks a little bit stiffer up around the shoulders coming off of Robin. And almost every single panel where the cape doesn't lay really natural on the body. But there's just something so very charming about this at the same time, which is why a lot of people like these Golden Age stories. Yeah, does, I mean... There is a, a, I mean, it ties into what I was saying earlier about being exposed to Euro comics, I guess the term, um, being exposed to Euro comics as a child and having that as my actual, you know, body of comics in the house is that uh, Europeans tend to go more for cartooning. They're very extreme uh Ex- not extreme in the way that not extreme, not the nineties <laughs> extreme, but in the same way. I mean, you know, a, a cartooning. Uh, if you look at a Tintin or an Asterix or like the giant noses or the, it's it's much more cartoony than um, your standard superhero comic. So the the wave of what I would call illustrators, and there were some in the golden age. If you look at like quality comics, mm-hmm. they had a lot of. Uh, a lot of their artists were very fine or Fine, and they had, you know, there was a very illustrative quality to some of that work. Sheldon Moldoff, or it's not all, oh yeah, yeah, the, the same, you know. But um, but at the same time, Newsprint couldn't reproduce very fine lines. So uh, the more, you know, it takes a while before it is becomes acceptable in in traditional mainstream comics to do it. So you got your Neil Adams and whatnot, uh, you know, end of the sixties, early seventies. They're going to bring an illustrative style that has carried over today with many artists. That you know, it's got to be photo real. Yeah. Reason. Well, and this is also in the time too, where like let's just get something out for the kids to read. There, and I don't mean a knock by this. I actually really like this. Like I'm going to go pick up the uh, uh, volume two uh, Robin book uh, once I can get to a shop or something like that to uh, pick it up, just because I found this so charming. But this was of of that time period where. Not that they weren't right, trying to write intelligent stories, but it was like, just get the characters through the story, and uh, it, it is what it is this this week, because next month we were going to have another one of these. So not that there wasn't much thought put to it, but that was just how this was written. It's, it wasn't yeah. written with you know 40-somethings on a microphone <laughs> talk, talking about these comics, but for you to pick this out, there... Initially, I thought, well, this is probably going to be a, a quick read. It was a quick read, but there's there's a decent amount of stuff going on in this issue 
that uh, I think still holds up, you know, really well. I went and put it up against, you know, the current Batman comics and trying to ask which one's better. I think better is a subjective word. It's, it's just a different style. I mean, I, yeah. I understand that it was disposable for, for many of the, uh, the people writing it at the time. You know, it's just it's, it's a grind and you're doing a lot. And like this person here, whoever wrote it. Didn't even ask for credit. <laughs> it was just, right. You know, it's just it's just disposable. Let's let's knock these out. And I know that some there were some writers and even artists uh, through I mean the forties, fifties, sixties, less so than more more so than we have today. Certainly, that would just you know let's knock these out. They are not permanent. There is no such thing as a <laughs> trade paperback. There's no such thing as a collection. Right. Re- reprints. You know, where's my money? Nothing. So. Yeah. Uh, and certainly no, no opening for this to become a cartoon or, uh, you know, it, it wasn't part of you, you were ju- this was a job and you did it. And right. it's a little bit like older TV as well. You look at older TV, like I'm a big Doctor Who fan, for example, you look at like the Hartnell Troughton years in the mm-hmm. 60s, what's left of it. And, and I say what's left of it because they wiped tapes because they needed more tapes. Right. Yeah. You know, so it's like this is disposable. This is going to go out once a week. You're going to watch it that week or you're going to miss it. Either way, it's out. Done. You're going to roll it up in your back pocket. You're going to hop on your bike. And exactly. You're going to go play ball, and you're going to go swim. And maybe the comic made it to the swimming pool, but probably not much after. And I, and I understand this because I'm a podcaster, and podcasting is, sorry to say, <laughs> just as ephemeral, just as yeah. you know, people listen to it. And the chances are that somebody's going to listen to something twice. It happens. Yeah. And I know I've done it. And I just don't, I don't just mean like because I'm editing some, but I mean, you know, it's like (laughs) normally people will listen to it and then there's another one the next week or the next day or people are, you know, subscribed to many podcasts and you you don't have time to go back. So, and so you don't. So our voices here, people are listening to it like for the first and last time for the most part. Right. Yeah. So I get it. You know, you're, you're doing that. And then some, let's say in, in 50 years, there's a huge interest in the, all these old podcasts from <laughs> from the 2000s, and and, and like people are listening and re-listening and and making you know compilations on their little data crystals, whatever it is. <laughs> we would be surprised to hear that. We'd go, oh, I yeah. can't believe my little, uh, you know, my improvised uh, chat, <laughs> <laughs> right? That that was not supposed to be listened to more than once is is you know something that's out there that people are listening to in 50 years. And yet, you know, that's exactly what happened here. It's like people were writing these comics and they're just, okay, they're going to wind up in somebody's basement or garbage can eventually, and I don't care. So this is the same, but you you still have to be, you still have to want to, to do your craft well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think like Jim Mooney, of course, uh, went on to, uh, you know, this is pretty early and he's aping the Bob Kane style. So it's not really, um, you know, it's not, it's not as good as, he might do on later on Supergirl or, right. but um, but still, you know, as far as art goes, this was the style of the day. This is the style that he was asked to do as part of Bob Kane's studio there. So he's doing it. He's doing it the best he can. Uh, I will note a at least one mistake in there somewhere that really bugged me, but uh, but otherwise, you know, charming, um, cartoonic cartooning style. And like I said, I'm very used to different cartooning styles because that, that's how I was brought up. I wasn't brought up with, with muscled figures. I was brought up with a very uh, a varied cartooning style. So uh, to me, that, that's never been a problem. And the writer, whoever he may be, um, 
let's say Bill Finger probably. That's his craft as well. He's yeah, if it's Bill Finger, he's writing these these kooky mysteries. Yeah, how many does he write in, in a month? You know, they, oh, yeah. these, and he's got to find new ideas and new new gimmicks and new props and new villains and and he's doing all of that. And sure, you think this is kind of disposable, but you want you want the kid that picks this up to have a fun time with it. You know, and uh, and that's how you keep your job. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. So yeah, no, I I mean, all of these stories are old fashioned, and the way they're old fashioned is that they don't have a lot of psychology to them. Right. You know, right. that's what that's what came up later. People would put psychology on top of this. And in some cases, like I said earlier, maybe it, they went so far that now it became impossible to have a, a believable Robin uh, yeah. in there because a, a you know, proper psychological Batman is abusive. But, uh, but within those... Con- so really, it's plot. Plot, 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 plot. And if you could like, draw out a little bit of character, a little bit of attitude in there, then it's a winner. But Otherwise, you know, these things are very much like a compressed story that, you know, there's so much happening in few pages that it is just plot, 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 plot. And you're there for the story. You're not, and maybe you like characters because of the kind of stories they're in or their look, but you're not there for, you know, the the psychology of that character. You're not there for character growth. Right. And, you know, I'm not seeing the growth of like what led the clock to get put in prison for 10 years and why, you know, you're not getting all this because Robin did this. He, you know, he pulled down my pants in front of the square and had everybody laugh at me, you know, when he tried to catch me, you you know, any of that stuff or, you know, he accidentally caused the death of my daughter. None of that subtext is there. There's really not much subtext at all other than I was caught by Robin. I was put in prison. I did 10 years of time and now I'm going to take a day of Robin's life away, which yeah. when I was well, probably reading, he's actually he's lost a year and some. He can't, he can't yes. have got, if he's lost ten years, then then Robin caught him when he was like four. Four, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I I read the wrong spot where it says yeah, ten years. I'm like, wait a minute, I think I'm reading that all wrong. Yeah, so he, because he steals a, a a year, a month, a day, and a, you know, it's it's like he's. It's very, very uh, obsessive for him. This so all it is. I mean, Batman villains are, and I guess Robin villains are the same. They're just they've got this a psychological problem. They're obsessive about something, uh, and it translates into crime. So that this is all we need to know is that the clock is one of these guys. He's a gimmick villain. He's got an obsession with something, and this is the fourth story. So. Uh, and it's it's interesting what you say because there's no recap here. They don't recap no. what happened before. Let's just take it as a given that the clock is a form is a villain that has been put in prison before. That's all we need to know. Uh, the opening panel after you get past the past the splash page, excuse me, is a clock with no faces and it's got no orientation on the clock. Uh, there's no like Timex logo. Like okay, this is the top of the clock. This is where. Noon is going to be, and you can figure out the time. So I really didn't pay much close attention to that, other than reading the little thing that this unique clock stole a day from Robin's life and shows you that's in the Bat Cave. And we'll tell you how this clock came came to get in the Bat Cave, and the story story goes through. So I had kind of forgotten by the time that Robin is where he is in this predicament in the story, and this clock is there that I went. Why does this clock seem familiar? So 
went back a few pages and I'm like, oh, but I remember thinking, well, just figure out where the top of the clock is and you can tell time. That's that's not there. But before we get to the clock and what that all meant, the the sequence I really liked is Robin at the baseball field. I can instantly hear Bud Abbott and Lou Costello doing Who's on First. I have done that skit when I was in high school and seeing this would be something that you've seen on a lot of world's finest comics with Batman, Robin and Superman playing a game of ball on the, on the front cover. So it's kind of comedic at the same time that he's got the clock has got the steamroller and he's got it, you know, turboed up, if you will, driving it around the ball fields. He's going to stop and steal second base. And I thought, well, that's kind of clever. Second base. He's stealing a second of time. And you get the clock on the top of that uh, page for every second, every minute, every, what is it, uh, every second, minute, hour, and day, week, month, and year I spent doing time. I will steal back my beginning with a second, the clock, which I thought was really kind of funny. Uh, what did you think of this uh, baseball sequence in here? I've, I'm always a sucker for this. For any golden age story that manages to put in baseball, you know, America's <laughs> pastime. And also one of the spectators, which looks like Bruce Wayne uh, sitting in there, says, did you see Robin's batting? Uh, what a slugger he'd make. Like, they're already looking at, like, I know Robin's a superhero, but man, he could be our new third baseman. <laughs> it's For them, it's just uh, more entertainment. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, in the same way I get, you know, I'm not a sports person. Like at all, but um, uh, I'm loosely. I'll just put it that way. Like I, uh, I can understand that that's baseball. <laughs> it's very loose, but uh, I get the same thrill. I mean, baseball, whatever. Uh, but I get the same thrill from seeing hockey in, uh, in comic books because that mm. never ha- almost have never happens. Um, so, <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Yeah. To each our own pastime, I guess. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is there. There's the pun with the second. Uh, with second base, there's uh, uh, Robin makes a joke about being Bat Boy. Yeah, when he knocks uh, Professor he knocks- Allen, where are you? This comic <laughs> is punny. Okay, sorry, a lot of puns. No, uh, <laughs> but I mean, this is how you write Robin. First of all, you know, it's yeah. like uh, I'm not saying the Batman in this era didn't use puns, <laughs> but uh, but but you know, we can look at Batman and his, like the whatever weird shenanigans in the fifties. You know, stuff like going to alien planets and a lot of these crazy yeah. plots and say, well, that's that's a very off-model Batman for us today. You know, Batman doesn't act like this anymore. But Robin, it still feels, you know, it still feels like Dick Grayson would have done this, been this, talked mm-hmm. like this. Even if in, you know, even if you bring him forward and this story, some you know, somehow happens, you know, how old is he now? You know, this, this story happens in 2010, you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever it would be with the sliding time scale. You uh, can believe it, though. Yeah, no, I mean, it it does work in that sense because he is that character. He's much more of a, uh, you know, like a happy-go-lucky Spider-Man jokes going you know it's like this is the character that he is and and on a strategy basis you know batman hangs around with robin because robin is sort of a distraction um you know, you know while while they're looking there he's knocking heads over here while he's uh throwing jokes uh you know the, the crooks don't know what to expect the dark knight uh <laughs> to come behind them so uh and this is i mean this is like seems like a very silly crime to, to yes. steal second base yeah. In a baseball game. But this is what I like about it. And this is going to be the through line for the clock throughout. Is that 
it's just a diversion. He's yeah. really, but while he's doing this, the uh, his buddies, his gang that he broke, you know, that he broke out of prison with him, uh, they're stealing the ticket office. So, and I mean, that's a major crime. Uh, that's a lot of money, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, the ticket office to uh, like a big stadium. So, he's actually perpetrating a real crime while making. Yeah, and this is how you use Robin's youth and naivete and. And maybe, you know, it's like, oh, like this guy's coming for me. He's uh, like Riddler-like. He left a clue and I'm going to go and stop him from committing this crime. But he's, you know, basically the clock, what the clock did was point him to a the wrong crime while he was doing something, something else, you know. So it's, you know, Robin doesn't see all the angles yet. And that makes sense because he's a young hero. He's still learning. And, these you know, he's getting some of his knocks here. And I like how the clock as well, you know, escapes justice in this also very cleverly he's hiding inside the steamroller and robin never notices never catches on that that might be a possibility so yeah. the right away the clock is very smart and it means that the stakes are higher for robin to actually catch him i'm gonna have to go once we go to a, an amusement park or if i wind up at a baseball stadium or a hockey arena i want to go to the asher and see if i can find one of those i was like looking at that panel going Asher, what is that? Oh, cashier. It's missing the <laughs> the C, the other part of the word. Off of it. I must have looked at that panel way too long to go, I, what am I not getting here? I'm like, Rob, you're not getting the correct spelling of the word. I thought, is this a 1940 slang that I am not familiar with? But I also <laughs> like this, too, that in a lot of these stories of the time, or even sometimes now, you would get Robin going after the henchmen in this scenario that Robin's looking for the clock, can't get him because he's trying to hit baseballs and run around the bases, and the clock would be stealing the money himself, be like twisting his mustache going, ha-ha, I got away from it, Robin, catch me. That That's flipped, and the henchmen are doing the actual stealing because the distraction is going to be the clock himself and crossing his fingers that Robin doesn't catch him again. So... I liked that, too, that it didn't have to rely on Robin couldn't catch the clock because he was fighting the henchmen. He just didn't catch the clock because he couldn't for whatever reason, maybe just plot, but that the henchmen are doing the stealing. I thought that was that was kind of cool and kind of clever that uh, it didn't rely on that trope. And as we'll see, the clock is actually a more physical character than you think because he was throwing balls and... Uh, mm-hmm. But throughout, he's like he's a mastermind, but he also gets pretty physical. And in this case, he even put himself at risk just to make sure to humiliate Robin further. You know, mm-hmm. as part of his ploy as well. So he's humiliating Robin. He's like doing this like crazy convoluted plan, and he's making mo- money off of it. So I think he's very he's a pretty smart character, uh, all things considered. What did you think about him stealing the minute uh, out of this? First of all, I thought, are we in Wayne Manor? Because that kind of looks like Alfred, like a lot like Alfred and with Chef Boyhardee there. So of trying to find, what is it, uh, the three and a half minute cooked or three minute egg and uh, clock ends up uh, doing it in two minutes and gasses the poor guy. So what did you think about about that, this this was one I was like, mm, okay, but again, it, it it was a ruse because of what he is stealing. Right, it is probably the weakest part of the story uh, because the, this whole egg thing 
is is ridiculous, and we spend way too much time on the old billionaires, mm-hmm. you know, Hercule Poirot-like obsession with the three-minute egg. Or, it's like <laughs> pages and pages of this guy not getting the egg he wants. Uh, and I'm not kidding. It's like two or three pages yeah. where we're not with Robin. We're not – I mean, the, I guess the clock replaces the cook. That That's the ploy. He stole a minute off the, the timer – which made the egg bad, and this billionaire is just like firing people left and right for giving him, you know, the wrong soft-boiled egg. So he gets himself hired uh, in the house for to be, you know, to be the cook. And while he's there, he steals something, you know. Um, so Robin here has followed the wrong clue. You know, mm-hmm. he, uh, he, you know, there's a uh, he thinks, oh, a minute, and I, I think it's totally coordinated. From the clock, you know, it's like uh, join the Minuteman Fund. Oh, Minuteman, uh, you know, this this is this war fund or whatever it is. Yeah. So, Robin goes to that event, and that's got nothing to do with it. So he's basically set it up so that he's doing something. He's stealing the minute. He's stealing something. Well, he's stealing a minute, but he's stealing something valuable, and at, and at the same time, coordinated so that Robin will go look the wrong place. Yeah. So, so again, he's very smart, but I think this uh, this entire bit with uh, the clock dressed as a cook and this it takes too long. It just takes too long, and Robin is not in it. Yeah, I would have rather moved, uh, and maybe and just got. I mean, I know they were doing like we're doing a second, we're doing a minute, you know, we're gonna do an hour. I do like that the clock that was in the Bat Cave that gets put in here where Robin gets tricked at the sundial. And I like these series of panels uh, moving through this section with uh, Robin kind of being in that hallucination state uh, with having some like gas, I think, being put in there where he's imagining uh, being much older and, you know, being a powerhouse as one of the guys ends up saying. But uh, the part I really liked is Robin being in this dark room only looks like it's maybe kind of lit from time to time with that clock that's got no no writing of any time on it and the constant tick tick and Robin's trying to tell himself, you know, how long has it been? He should smash the clock. No, he has to control himself. He's got to stick it out. So that would be kind of maddening to know you have a device there with you. And he even says he could try and count the seconds, but he's not sure what, how he's trying to count these seconds. Like, great. He can count. Like I've been in here a couple minutes but you don't know is has it been hours has it been days he's got no frame of reference so i thought that was really kind of cool given that this is a late 40s story that there was a little bit more we were talking about psychology there is some psychology going on with robin of what the clock is doing to robin at this time and then him getting out when the sunlight hits the clock again where you do find out he's lost a day. So uh, what were your thoughts on, on this part? This is actually my favorite sequence in the book. Yeah, a day, but then the whole week has passed, passed, I think, by the time. Yeah. yeah. So he's lost track of time completely. And the psychology here, I mean, there is that element of cartoony psychology where uh, they hit him with, not fear gas, but wish gas, I guess. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, all these gases. There must be, there's a villain per gas. And wish gas... <laughs> Uh, makes him think, you know, has a, like this fantasy where he's dr- he's basically drugged here, where he has a, this fantasy where he's like seven feet tall and he's kicking ass, and uh, and then when he wakes up, time has passed, and of course, 
he's in this little cell and he doesn't know, you know, he doesn't know what time it is. And even if he were to stay awake and, and we see him like he's, there are sleeping spells. So he's been mm-hmm. in there for a while. And because he's groggy, because he's been drugged, uh, this is pretty, this pretty uh, intense stuff going on here for like our 12 or 13 year old hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, there there is some sort of psychology and then he's released and it's like, and during that week, the clock, of course, committed crimes. So um, it's, it, you know, it's not looking good for the boy wonder. But at least he's got a fan club he can go talk to uh, while they're having the Robin fan club meeting, which I thought was, we were talking about, you know, Robin doing uh, ribbon cutting ceremonies. Uh, his, <laughs> fan cl- his fan club would definitely would have been there for that, which I thought, man, th- this is straight up uh, golden age at its finest that, you know, Batman's got a fan club. Well, of course, <laughs> Robin has a fan club and he utilizes them to go out to the street to track down uh, clock and I had a get smart uh, <laughs> thought there yeah. with the instead of the shoe phone ah it's the old phone and the shoe shine box trick so I thought that was that, that was that's just adorable it's it's the only word I have for it and that they're the toy of the month club like I'm a collector of superhero stuff I'll be part of the toy of the month club you know you got the twisted nails on the wall and you've got the shards of i don't know shards of glass but you got the uh the picture of it's all put together in pieces so uh, i thought this was was really kind of cool and getting a chance to see robin do some detective work uh which i thought was also really nice figuring out uh the paint scrapes and uh what the color of the car was what the color of a license plate was and you know what state has the colored license plates and you know i remember being in the car with my parents on a long trip and we would play the license plate game. I don't sure. Know if, you know, like, oh, there's Ohio, there's Michigan, there's Indiana. And then you're like, I remember the first time we saw something like Ontario. Like, where's that? And I remember my dad going, oh, man, what are they not teaching you at school? I'm like, <laughs> it's from Canada. And we're like, why doesn't it say Canada? And dad going, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I, I that. I thought that was uh, kind of cool as well. And, and seeing all those license plates, I remember uh, my grandfather had a barn uh, for the longest time that he would hang all of his old license plates in the barn. He must have had, you know, 50 or 60 different license plates from different cars that he had had as a kid up till, you know, tractors and wagons. So seeing this kind of made me do a little time travel. Like, yeah, this reminds me of my grandpa's barn. So Batman has a bunch of license plates in the bat cave that they can do detective work. So uh, I, I thought this was kind of a cool spot before we uh, get to the end of it. What'd you think of uh, Robin using his fan club to help uh, track down clock? A lot of golden age heroes had fan clubs or like uh, CB radio enthusiasts and that kind of stuff. I think like Mr. Terrific had a club. Mm, that's um, right. I think like star spangled kid uh, who was, who started out in star spangled comics also, I think I, I can't remember exactly who had what, but most of them I think had a fan club, <laughs> and maybe you know the the writers were trying to to make that happen, you know, in a way. Uh, it's like you're out there and you're part of that fan club because you're reading these comics, and look, yeah. your gang, your club helped Robin in this case. So this is always fun, and I think it's a bit of a precursor um, because I mean, there's a lot of this idea that is look look at what kids can do and robin is a kid 
and he has a fan club of kids, and these kids together turn the tide on the clock, you know? Uh, they, they turn the clock back, <laughs> if you will, because this is the first crime that is actually thwarted. Um, and this is a precursor to what Robin's career is going to be later uh, with Bob Haney's Teen Titans. Yeah. There are a lot of stories there about youth empowerment, youth culture. Uh, the youthful heroes are using and helping um, other teenagers. You know, it's, it feels like a big teenage world against the, uh, the grumpy adults in those stories. So this is a kind of precursor to that. And um, yeah, they all camp out of the month of the, the of the month clubs. <laughs> I, oh, I mean, can they make sure to cancel my Columbia house subscriptions while they're there? Because <laughs> it's like Gotham city is the headquarters of all the, all the of the month clubs. Right. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. There, there's probably their warehouses full of pennies that have been taped to the card and just laying like, why did we say tape a penny? To the stupid card we got. I I was always fooling believe that those pennies were falling out of mail carriers everywhere. That somebody would look down like, why do I have forty five cents on the bottom of my truck? Oh, it's from mm. all these Columbia House things. I think at one time I had three Columbia House thing, things going at one time. My mom going, you're going to be with a debt collector for the rest of your life. Get out of this thing now. I will take you to the store. But I'm like, mom, buy. I only have to buy four over the course of seven years and. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, the, it was useful to me at a time when uh, I was in the science fiction book club, and mm. that was useful in my small town to get, you know, so a lot of the science fiction fantasy books that I wanted, but um, including some I, like Watchmen, and you know, there were some a few comics in there that were collected, and mm. this was early days for that, and certainly no comic book store in my town for. Most of the time I was there. Uh, but uh, the, 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 the bit with the uh, license plates. Like, first of all, I like that there's a cut and paste, like a photocopy cut and paste element to the art here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so that's cool because you don't see a lot of that. Um, it's a bit washed out, at least in our copy. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's like I see this and I'm going, okay, where is Gotham City then? <laughs> right, I, right. I like this whole idea of the paint scrapes, and the car was a certain color, but the the, the paint that it left when it hit a fire hydrant uh, is a different color, and it's like. And then he says uh, that, like in our state, wherever Gotham is, um, <laughs> you know, it's orange and black state plates. So then I okay, so okay, internet, tell me where in. 1949, 1948, 1949, when this was written and conceived, which states had orange and black plates? And to which I, I take to mean not black and orange. So right. orange with black script is what I took it to mean. Same and there are, yeah, it could have been, I mean, there were many. I mean, it's a very common plate color in the U.S., I guess. Uh, here, plates t- tend to be white with colored writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Uh, orange plates or deep yellow plates, which look very much orange. Yeah, that's pretty common. So it could have been California or North Carolina or Maryland. You know, take your pick. But New York had a yellow plate that could be construed as orange, and a deep yellow one from the year before, all with black script. So the the whole idea that Gotham is really New York or you know equivalent to New York. Acceptable, yep. but if you want to put it in Maryland, I'm okay with that. Does Maryland get snow? Because Gotham gets snow. I don't know. Yeah, well, something that Clinton uh, 
Robinson and I were talking about on the previous uh, 80th anniversary was the DC generally used their fictitious cities of Gotham, Metropolis, Keystone, Coast, whereas Marvel was using New York, Chicago, you know, all those. Like, I always kind of liked DC. You couldn't quite put you know, where Gotham was like, eh, it might be around Manhattan, you know, it could be Jersey, probably more likely Jersey or something like that. But every once in a while they would slip in where Robin figures out, Oh, this is Indiana. It's the Indiana license plate where then you start going, Oh, now you're bringing like real world, you know, you're, you're putting a, a state or a city into your fictional universe. And those things used to really make me upset as a kid. I'm like, don't do that. <laughs> You know, but then that that gets you to go, oh, so it makes you want to go. All right, well, what did the Indiana license plate look like? You know, back then. So I, I like. I thought that was yeah. It's it's a cool little element, and it's actually here with Robin. And I think this is very uh, and you know typical of these stories where a lot of these stories are much more like straight up mysteries. Uh, with Robin deducing things, but here I mean he's using spectroscopy, and so he's trying to find that you know what what that paint where that paint comes from, and then he can put an APB on the, the car, uh, and if it is an Illinois plate, well then is is Gotham more of a a Chicago? Is it like? I know, is it Indiana and Illinois are closer by? I don't know. So yeah, it's like I'm in Ohio. I could drive to Gotham like right now. <laughs> it's you know, it's the kind of thing that when I it, I kind of obsess over. It's one of my uh, it's one of the fun things I like to do on my blog, and I think we we did do it. Shag, uh, you know, the irredeemable Shag and I on on an episode of uh, Hero Points where. Um, you know, we talked about the Atlas of the DC Universe, which is a role-playing product, but it was written by Paul Kupperberg, mm, yeah. uh, an actual comic book writer. So, you know, uh, and we did discuss, you know, where did you put those? Because the cities are there. They're actually, you know, on a map. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like, how did you decide those things? And and does it make sense? And so, uh, you know, I've done a lot of map work of the <laughs> DC Universe. So it happens to be one of my personal obsessions. If I'm not, you know, unlike the clock, it is not driving me to to crime yet. Yes. So <laughs> not yet. But uh yeah, but I like all this this bit where okay, here enough is enough. Stop following the stop reacting to clues and uh, you know that the that the villain is you know, actually you know, uh, sending you the you know the wrong message. It's a lot of red herrings. It's a lot of confusing information. He wants you to fail, so stop following his clues and start to follow your own. And that's mm. where okay, we're gonna flip it on him now. And it happens because of a detective moment. And that's you know that this is this is Robin carrying out the lessons that he's learned with Batman. Yeah. And how can the clock steal a year? Can you guess? And I remember thinking before I you know scrolled to the next page like what's he gonna do steal a calendar and then i scrolled to the <laughs> next page and i was like oh well actually yeah he's gonna steal the plates that make the calendar and only in a golden age story that this is going to take place on a giant large oversized calendar like they're running around the month of january and february i thought this was a, a cool way to end the issue and uh, I, I, I really like this. Uh, what were your thoughts on the ending of this? Uh, well, first of all, this is an insane uh, publicity campaign. 
<laughs> this thing. Yeah. Because because it is. I mean, they're supposed to be. We're in a calendar factory, uh, printing plant, and he's going to steal the plates to the 1950 calendar. So yep. that really sets us. Okay, we're in this. We're in this time. Published in October 49, stealing the calendar that's about to be printed for the next year. I'm going to steal a whole year. Ha ha, clever. Uh, and I'm sure there's a scheme in there, to a money scheme in there that is never resolved, that we never find out about. Right. Uh, because that's been his modus operandi. Now, <laughs> the the big, the giant calendars are an ad campaign, apparently. Right. <laughs> so, and there are at least two months there. These are giant billboards, giant dioramas, I guess. You know, they're, yeah. they're 3D, and they're going to be put up somewhere to, to, st- to, you know, to sell the 1950 calendar. <laughs> probably in Indiana. Uh, <laughs> uh, probably. And, I mean, what is this? In, I mean, how much is this costing you? Where are going to they be put up? Uh, are there 12 months? <laughs> are, are you going to constantly just take... Okay, we got January, February. We built two of these, so we're going to move the big letters. We're going to slide the numbers around constantly, and by April of that year, somebody's going to be like, "This is the dumbest promo we have ever come up with." I'm not going to go up there and move uh, 12 through 18 again. I'm just not going to pull those numbers off. I mean, how is how is this cost effective? Right. Uh, yeah. First of all, it looks like you know it looks much more costly than how many calendars you have to sell. To to, re- to get back your money uh, on publicity, and also, why do calendars need to be sold to people? Is that I mean, is, it, are there people out there that don't see in this era? I mean, today we don't use calendars anymore much. Uh, today I could see people trying to like force you to buy calendars, but back then it's like everybody's got calendars. Oh, you know, New Year, we need a new calendar. Mm-hmm. It's just. I don't think you need this big publicity campaign. So that's insane, uh, first of all. It's funny. And, I mean, this thing's got a working axe that's actually sharp enough that, you know. Yeah, that, that you're, you're in danger of cutting. You know? Yeah. So, I'm sure uh, the, the safety foreman was like, gee, the boy wonder about got cut in half. I told you we shouldn't have sharpened that blade, Bob. <laughs> so this is all crazy. This is the mistake that I was alluding to earlier uh, that, that really bugs me, and it's in the choreography. Because the left and right of it, okay. they climb up the February calendar. They have their fight. Uh, Robin is on the left hand side. The clock is on the right hand side. Mm-hmm. Then we they, we they move over to the January calendar, which is to the left. Right. Correct. And then and Robin is still in, on the left, and the clock is still on the right. And I and then and here I mean it doesn't work for me because. It would mean that Robin, instead of springing on the clock, went back a calendar month and then got on a, uh, you know, he got on a sled Mm -hmm. and then slides to the clock, the clock who should be escaping to the right. Correct. So they all move to the to the left. Uh, Really, they should have gone to the March calendar. You know, it should yeah. have been the clock moved, then moves to the to the March calendar, and Robin beats him with a budding tree. I don't know what yeah. March would be, but this know. is a side-scrolling video game at its at its finest. Like we we're always going to the right. We shouldn't be going to the left. Because I thought the same thing. Like so, clock is getting away. So does Robin have to say, "Hold on, stay where you are. I'm going to go up to this sled, and then I'm going to come down at you." Yeah, and I mean, I get it. They want the gag. The gag that they want to work is that he lands on the first of January, mm-hmm. 
and Robin can make his joke about spending the new year in jail. In jail! Well, <laughs> you know. but he doesn't... So, even from the spot where they're at, he clock is hanging from the Y of January, and then does he do a somersault off of, like, the 5 or the 9, and then roll all the way I, back to yeah. 1 to the left? So you've got that left-right movement happening again, the opposite direction. Like, it looks like he's falling off the Y of January, so he should be hung up on wherever that the number sequence, like the 10 or the 11 or something like that. Right. But so he, they should have flipped the heroes, uh, the characters. Yeah. So that the, the Robin would always be on the right and the clock always be on the left. Then it means he runs to January. He gets hit while he's over the J or something. And then he falls on the one as seen in the last panel. Mm-hmm. So that's like a choreography thing that, that just failed, you know, like, uh, uh, just uh, tripped up at the finish line there, and the, and then of course you got to cycle back and say this is the like the story ends there on that. It's not a death pun exactly, but you know it <laughs> ends on that that joke, and then you would actually go back to the beginning to say, oh yes, this all of this was the story of how he got that clock, that numberless clock in the uh, in the trophy case. Yeah, that's not resolved either. I. I- I had that in my notes, and I almost forgot to say it. I was like, so where does he go back and get the clock? Like, you know, you don't see Robin with it at Commissioner Gordon to be like, you mean he not only took a week from me, but I had to listen to this stupid clock tick? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe he has it in his hand when he's, uh, you know, he's got his hand is off panel when okay. he walks out of the place, and then he dropped it off at the at the Batcave, or just went back later, you know, when he's... Like showing the cops where you you need to show the evidence. I mean, that's you true. can't you know that won't fly in court otherwise. So then, uh, Officer but, O'Hara took it to the Clock of the Month Club for safekeeping for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so this is how, but this basically this was like a, a frame tale without a bookend. Yeah, at the end, uh, you know what is this? This is the mystery of the story. What is this clock doing here? And we'll tell the story. So uh, there's a little bit of a. We're we're forward in time somewhere, and we're being retold this story. It's an I don't think it's a necessary frame tale, but you know that's what they went with. Yeah. But the bottom says Batman and Robin means top and detective thrills. They can also team up in world's finest comics and detective comics. The end. So, but not Batman. But not Batman. Yes. No. In Batman, no Robin. Right. I doubt that's true. That's not true at all in this era. <laughs> <laughs> But this was a a wonderful pick. I was really kind of hoping somebody uh, would pick a Golden Age story or something, you know, off the beaten path that I might have not even uh, thought about going down. So that's the fun thing about uh, doing some of these uh, 80th anniversary, or actually all of these 80th anniversary shows, is finding out the connections uh, the guests have with Robin and just their like why they chose this uh, their particular pick for this episode. So, Siskoid, this was a wonderful pick, and uh, looking at the price point of the uh, book, uh, what is it? The volume Robin Archives, yeah, Robin Archives, uh, Volume Two. Uh, looks like it has a cover price of fifty nine ninety nine. I'm sure I could probably find it a little bit cheaper than that. Professor Allen, don't don't yell at me. I'll try and get it closer to your your quarter or at least yeah. half if you, if you look at like uh price points for the actual golden age comics 
uh, like this story, this Star Spangled issue, about the same price for that one. Well, of course, you get that, only that one story plus Tomahawk Manhunter and Captain mm-hmm. Compass, but um, like getting that at a like a reasonably priced Star Spangled comics runs you about the same, but you'd only get that one. This one tail. That's one tail. Yeah, that's not that's not bad. You know, there's really no major first appearance. Even if this was the clock's first appearance, he's only had four, so that's not going up in in price. But uh, stuff like this was, you know, we wouldn't have a, our modern comics. And some people are like, maybe we shouldn't have our modern comics. I prefer these <laughs> these older tales. But again, this this was a blast before. Uh, we let you go. If you have anything else for this issue, uh, where could people get a hold of you, and what wonderful shows uh, can you turn some people on to? Uh, well, if your reading's your thing, and I'm hoping some people still read, uh, I, I still, you know, I, I still post uh, once a day at Siskoi's blog of geekery, uh, everything from comics to movies to role playing, anything that's geeky. Um, I'm still doing a lot of articles over there, uh, and if you're more of a podcast fan, and if you're listening to this, there's a good chance. Uh, I hang my hat at the Fire and Water Podcast Network, where I host a number of shows, including, take a deep breath, Zero Hour Strikes, Oh Hot More Not, Give Me That Star Trek, Hero Points, FW Team Up, and recently Who's Editing, which is a like a smaller project, but um, it's getting some traction. Episodes normally available every Tuesday, which we call Canada Day over at the network, but so that's my day. <laughs> nice. It's been a blast having you on the show, and I... Uh, Regret not reaching out earlier, but uh, the Drake door is always open uh, should you choose to uh, take the invitation to come back. It's been a a lot of fun, and I appreciate you coming on the show and talking about Robin and, uh, more importantly, the 80th anniversary uh, of Robin. He's older than we are. Yep. That's for sure. (laughs) And and perpetually 16. (laughs) That's true. Unless you're Damien and you're 13. Thanks for having me, and I hope you uh, and it, you know that that's a that's a two way door. So if if ever you there's something you want to talk about in one of my shows, you're more than welcome as well. Awesome, I will have to take you up on that. Well, folks, this is where we're going to end this episode. Tune in uh, next time in two weeks. We will go back to the glorious '90s, and uh, we at the time of this recording, I think we should be knee deep into legacy and the Staz Johnson era of Robin Begins. So on behalf of Siskoid, this is Rob. You've been listening to the Batman universe, and more importantly, you've been listening to Robin. Everyone loves the Drake and Robin's 80th anniversary. We'll see you on the next episode. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to Robin. Everyone loves the Drake podcast. This has been brought to you by the BatmanUniverse.net. Tim Drake, Robin, and all Batman-related characters are under copyright of DC Comics. This podcast is solely for entertainment purposes, so no infringement is intended by this show. This show is not a good revenue stream. Actually, there's not a stream at all. All music and sound clips are under copyright by their respected copyright holders. So there should be no need to send the Penguins lawyers after us for ill-gotten gains because there are none. You can get a hold of the show a few different ways. We are on Twitter at ELTD Podcast. You can also email in at Robin ELTD Podcast at Yahoo.com. Our Facebook page can be found at www.facebook.com slash everyone loves the Drake. And as always, you can message directly over at the BatmanUniverse.net. So email, tweet, or message us. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll read your comments or responses on the show. 
The show you're listening to can be found a few different ways through iTunes and Windows Media, also over at our host, TBU. Leave us a review on iTunes if you listen there. It'll help spread the word of the show. Make sure you head over to the BatmanUniverse.net, your home for all things Batman and Robin. Thanks for listening to the show and hearing why everyone loves the Drake. We'll see you in a few weeks. Take care.